fellow section cut listeners. We know it's been a while since our last episode. You might ask, what have we been doing besides interviewing awesome folks for the Giants podcast? Well, we've been making the website more user-friendly, running workshops, working full-time jobs, teaching courses, changing careers, and changing diapers. It's been a pretty big year for all of us at SC. And for those of you who haven't logged in in a while, we've got a few things to note. First, do you have something to say to the design community? Does it deserve a more highly curated platform than Facebook? Well, you should consider writing on SC's Studio Culture section. If you click Create a Post under your profile pic hover, you will find a post creator. Second, do you see the occasional interesting article on the internet and think, this is super good, I wish I could share it somewhere besides Facebook or Twitter where it just gets lost in the noise? Well, if you submit it to the SC feed, we will feature it in the weekly dispatch. Again, under your profile, pick hover, and click post to feed. Third, we're compiling an ArcaSpeak dictionary. If you have good terms like POMO or Fenestrate to add, the dictionary will be living on our homepage in the near future and always available in our studio culture section. Finally, and as always, consider using SC as your special place to save all those really juicy resources. Click curate in the upper right corner to save anything to your profile page, and we'll select the best stuff to feature on the public collection for all to see. Don't forget your resources are always visible on your own profile page. Okay, on to the show. Today's episode is a long time coming. Creative director John Ostert interviewed Jeff Toon and Kathy Belikov of RVTR in University of Michigan back in December, but the conversation is no less relevant. Without further ado, I'll let them introduce themselves now. My name is Jeffrey Toon. I'm an associate professor at Taubman College of Architecture and Urban Planning and a director of RVTR. And I'm Kathy Velikov. I am also an associate professor of architecture at the Taubman College of Architecture and Urban Planning, as well as a director and with Jeff, co-founder of RVTR. All right. Tell us a little bit about RVTR and what sort of work you do. So RVTR operates simultaneously as a professional architectural practice as well as an academic research platform. So what we try to do is we explore and experiment on the agency of architecture and urban design within a a context of ecological systems, infrastructures, new materials, technologically mediated environments, and new social um, organizations. We have three partners, Jeff, Colin Ripley, who's not here right now, and me. Jeff and I are here at the office in Ann Arbor that we operate out of the Liberty Research Annex, which is kind of fantastic research and project space that is uh, provided by the University of Michigan Taubman College. And Colin teaches at Ryerson University in Toronto and manages the Toronto operations of RVTR. We work on kind of urban scale work within kind of ex-urban territories, infrastructures, resource landscapes, and kind of systemically considered urban architecture, as well as at the scale of buildings where we have been particularly interested in experimenting with novel material systems and technologies for responsive building skins and We kind of operate fairly experimentally. We're constantly testing projects through installations, exhibitions, writing. We also kind of work as a bit of a think tank. And we are essentially a research-based practice. So the majority of our work right now is grant-funded as opposed to private commissions or anything like that. Sure. So how did RBTR get started? Well, there's a kind of long version of that, and then there's a series of short versions so we'll see how much uh, editing is required to sure. reduce this down. 
We first met, Kathy and I were in school together in the 90s at the University of Waterloo. And um, in 1994, we were studying in Rome. And on the way back from Rome, it turned out that the director of the school had bought a new house and hadn't sold the old house. So a group of us moved in to his, you know, kind of Victorian mansion and started working together on a studio. We'd been dreaming of this option studio that was in a large scale installation that Derek Remington used to offer. And for some reason, that term, it wasn't offered. So we had to take this design build furniture course. And uh, we weren't really interested in making furniture at all. So we just decided to do our own installation studio. So we convinced a 90-year-old Mennonite farmer named Gordon Good to let us work on his property in exchange for some help around the farm. There's no way this is a true story. The book actually is just really? over here. Yeah, I think that's a lot of how we began. We began kind of working together on this project, you know, welding stuff and doing site work and using excavation equipment. And then we kind of moved in together with our colleague, Abel Gill, at that time. It was this kind of fantasy, you know, like the Grateful Dead at Haight-Ashbury, that we would somehow live in the house and we'd be this company. So that's a kind of point of origin. And then the, the next part happens in 1997 when we'd been teaching together at this point in Rome. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were back in Toronto. And, you know, we'd always had this kind of idea of building some entity together. So we rented this two-story, 1,600-square-foot apartment right at Queen and Spadina in Toronto. And we lived on the ground floor. And the second floor was a big studio, which we imagined would somehow be full of work at some point. <laughs> and then our former professor, Derek Revington, approached us about doing a national competition for the Blur Street Viaduct, uh, a suicide barrier and the Blur Street Viaduct. is kind of international public art competition that combined the production of public space on a historic monument with this idea of preventing primarily a schizophrenic population from leaping off the bridge, which is the second highest jumping suicide site in North America. And of course, he didn't have a studio, but we had this big expectant <laughs> studio. So we did the competition there and we won the competition. And so then we started working on the project with him. And within about a year of that, the Downsview Park competition was announced and Derek had close relationships with Bernard Schumi. Kathy was working in a, an office, Sterling Finlayson, and I was working with Derek. So we convinced everyone to assemble as a team <laughs> so we'd get to work together again on that competition. So then we spent the next year almost, the two of us working almost exclusively on that project, primarily on the ecological systems development and various cartographies and notational scores that describe the landscape work of that project. So that was kind of phase two. And then phase three happened. We then went off and worked in a number of different offices in Toronto, myself at Baird Sampson Newart and Kathy at Architects Alliance. And we were project architects doing institutional buildings and housing projects in different locations. And we kind of got to this moment where we were, you know, in the pre-partner discussions about long-term planning in both offices. And Kathy came home from work one day and she said, I'm going to go back to school and do an MA in art history. And I looked around frantically because we just <laughs> bought this house at this point together. Yeah. And in a very typical way that our relationship kind of operates, I said, well, I'm going back too, and I'm going to do a <laughs> master's degree in urban design. We're so, become professors. so we both quit our jobs and uh, went back to school at the University of Toronto. And then probably about halfway through that or just after graduating, we had conversations with Paul Raff, who was a good friend of ours and an architect in Toronto, and Colin, who was an associate with me at Baird Sampson Newark. And we were always talking at parties about, like, someone needs to make a new office that's different than all the little offices in Toronto that you see starting. 
And there was this kind of model where somehow you'd start an architectural office and you'd renovate a kitchen and you'd do some stuff like that. And then you imagined that this would somehow lead to like institutional library commissions in the future. But of course, you know, this story doesn't always play out for everybody. So we just knew there was no way we were renovating kitchens. And uh, we thought it would be really great if we could eliminate clients altogether. And so we looked at each other and said, well, what if we were a research-based practice? You know, at that time, probably in about 2001, it was the first time I'd ever heard architects come and talk about their work at a lecture and start using the word research instead of their design work, a phenomenon we now know is like emerged globally. So we thought that would be interesting, but we didn't know what would that be and how do you get a grant and how do you describe the projects you might want to do? So we just imagined that it was possible and we started finding out about how you articulate a vision and convince agencies to fiscally support that vision. And RVTR was born. Our first project actually came from a former student of Collins at Ryerson who was working with a developer in China and approached us about doing some kind of urban design scale planning work. And we'd seen a lot of offices in Toronto that had been gambling on work in China and had been Mm -hmm. uh, financially suffering when payment didn't arrive. And so we began the negotiations with these individuals and said, you know, we'll only do this work if you pay us in cash up front with a deposit. And they said, a check? And we said, no, cash. So one day, (laughs) Faye showed up with a bag of cash literally a brown paper bag of cash to start this uh, master planning project. And so RVTR is really born that day at lunch, carrying a bag of cash through Chinatown to open a bank account to start the office. That's definitely the best origin story of any firm I've ever heard. That's a lot better than, well, we went to grad school together, so... (laughs) Okay, well, that's really interesting. So maybe we can segue into the way that that's sort of begun to operate in, in concert with your work at the academy. So on your website, you write that you work to blur boundaries between your professional architectural practice and your academic research. Do you make a distinction between your research projects and your professional projects, or do individual projects combine aspects of both for you? Yeah, it's funny that you're asking that question because we've been annoyed with this website for a couple of years now and talking <laughs> about how much we need to change it because sure. this website was set up in about 2009 when We were initially setting up the practice and we were thinking, oh, we're going to have research and we're going to have projects and publications and they're all going to be different. But we started realizing that we actually often were having trouble kind of putting things in one category and the other Mm -hmm. or projects would appear in multiple categories. (laughs) Like we have a category for exhibitions and it's often the research work and the publications are. (laughs) So right now we've actually been talking about redoing it where there are none of these boundaries and we just haven't actually gotten around to doing that. So I guess the answer to the question is right now we don't see these boundaries, Mm -hmm. but the website doesn't reflect that. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Like it's always the categorization problem, right? Like you want to break down the grain of the work so that it's digestible for people who are looking for something, but these like categorizations don't always apply. Right. Right. I think one way you could sort it, I think would be by scale. So the work of RBTR spans between wildly different scales and terms of engagement. You've developed kinetic assemblies at the scale of the body, designed and built sustainable housing, developed urban planning strategies, and your most recent project could be said to occupy a multitude of scales, regional and urban planning, architectural proposal, and representation at the scale of large acrylic panels translated into a book format now. 
So from the outside, it seems really to vary quite wildly. How would you characterize your relationship with scale? And do these multiple scales require uh, siloing yourself into different ways of seeing or working? Or is there a common through line which defines your approach at, at all the scales that you work on? Well, first of all, from a disciplinary perspective, I think we've always imagined and continue to believe that architecture constitutes an approach to conceiving of the built environment that is really without a scalar boundary or even boundaries in terms of the media that one might deploy. Like if we think about Vitruvius or Corbusier, Aldo Rossi, Rem Koolhaas or Alvaro Alto, there's certainly no shortage of examples of architects who choose to engage the full spectrum of scalar possibilities from the region to the city to buildings to furniture. And if we think about Charles and Reims, you know, we think about design thinking that's spanning a range of media from domestic artifacts to traveling exhibitions to film, which are aiming to transform the way in which an entire population conceives of the possibility of contemporary life. I mean, it's not to say that the way one works across all those scales is mirrored or is the same. Obviously, it's actually a whole range of different capacities and abilities, techniques, skills, issues. Mm -hmm. But for us, it's always been a kind of hardly a novel model. Rather, I think coming out of our own education and training, really a kind of expectation that one would think and at least have an ambition to operate across those scales, whether the opportunities to do so arrive or not within a particular practice is another question. So in terms of the way that we work at RVTR, where we really project and try to define our own projects to work on, as opposed to waiting for someone to arrive with or without a bag of cash and asking (laughs) us to do something. That's, I think, part of how we attempt to set up the office and map out the work that we undertake. That's interesting. Like the idea that it would be internally generated as opposed to in response to uh, prompt. I'm just curious, like what kind of methods you have for generating those topics and areas of research and then figuring out how to work on them? Yeah, I think it's in many cases, it's more the kind of prompt. And maybe this also comes from our background and experiences as educators. So it's kind of like the brief that you write for yourself and then you undertake it. And also because a lot of them are grant funded, you have to find the prompt, find the problem, find the topic that you want to work on. And then we propose it. And then if we get the grant, then we get to do it. It's kind of like working in a perpetual thesis, <laughs> you know, for a student. And maybe that's like, it's like the thesis is the a constant practice model. In this time, and, yeah, life is thesis, but then people pay you to do yeah, your thesis. And so, which, you know, and sometimes you have to kind of shape it within kind of the interests of some of the kind of funding bodies who are giving the money. And so you find yourself responding to also some of their interests, but that also helps just the same way that a client helps to give you feedback and create those kind of boundaries and constraints, as well as the kind of focus to the work or kind of shaping the work the way that, um, you know, in many ways, the funding agency is often a kind of client, a Mm -hmm. kind of proto-client that has some of their interests that you need that feedback on your interests and you kind of find a, a path. How about writing? How does that factor into this? Because that's like a 
it's a wholly different medium, but I wonder if that, you know, relative to the scale question, yeah, like, is it a different part of your brain, different way of working, or is it all like the different facets of the same thing? Yeah. I mean, I think kind of coming to the scale question, it's always different facets depending on both the media. And I would say in terms of scale, it's more like focal length. So sometimes mm. we want to focus on things very close up. But we don't lose sight of the distant things. They're just a bit more blurry. <laughs> and sometimes you kind of change your focal length to the kind of larger scale of things. And the closer scale is still present, but it's not quite in focus. So I think that that's one way I might describe the way that we engage scale. It's always kind of present as a totality, but you change your kind of focal length and um I think the same thing with kind of the media specificity that goes with different facets of the project. So writing is actually an integral part of the projects. In one hand, because, as I mentioned earlier, because most of them are not client-driven, they're, they're kind of brief-driven mm -hmm. through kind of ourselves, through a kind of proposal initial prompt. So even kind of shaping the project through writing as an initial premise is actually integral to the project in the first place. And then we actually use writing as a mechanism of kind of honing the project. Writing gives us a way to kind of critically think about the projects actually as we do them. And so it actually becomes part of the design process itself. When you were doing those, you know, shorter term projects like competitions, things like that, that had a more limited scope, was writing also integral then or was it less essential? Is this more of an aspect of like a slow cook? I think the short projects relies much on writing for us as the longer duration projects. The nature of the writing is probably different insofar as the, it often takes the shape of a claim or a manifesto insofar as you're always making an argument about why the thing is the way it is, whether it's, you know, by framing it to a jury in the context of a competition or whether it's framing a proposal that you're trying to assemble interest around. So I think the, the writing works in different ways. Sometimes it's a project description. Sometimes it's a piece that's more expansively trying to situate a thought or work within a kind of disciplinary history. So they're very different kinds of writing mm -hmm. with different durations and different kind of volumes of effort. But I think the word and articulating the idea through writing as well as through the imaging of design are central to everything we do. Hmm. So we've already got the bag of money story, which is great. Could you also provide us a frenzied deadline story from which you emerge victorious? I'm sure we've got some of those in the history, right? Well, this is an interesting question. I mean, mostly when we emerge victorious, it's not through frenzied deadlines. <laughs> and then looking back, while there have been some frenzied deadlines, we've rarely emerged victoriously from them. So I think actually that is a, something to do. I think that the idea of the frenzied deadline and actually more a kind of response against the frenzy deadline is probably something that's central to the way we work and the way that the office context works. We actually aim to work regular hours. We aim to sleep at night. We like our people to feel good and have weekends and not resent us. Of course, this is in response to early career paths that didn't look like that. Sure. So it was kind of an ambition that we've set. And for us, it's a lot about talent retention. It's a lot about trying to think clearly and have space. So you need to work hard 
all the time, but you don't have to work all the time. And everyone needs a break and everyone needs to feel good and see their uh, significant others on the weekend and have a nice meal and stuff. And if you're grinding into the ground constantly, uh, it's easy to get really frustrated and it's easy not to think deeply about things. So I don't know, we try to work against the frenzy deadline and against temporal exploitation. So I wonder about this, like culturally, because there's definitely a culture in architecture, particularly in architecture, in the more academic realm of things towards the frenzy deadline, the idea that, you know, you have to be working all the time or that there's some virtue in busyness or something like that. And I'm wondering, like, have you experienced different academic cultures than that? Or is it like a quality of academics that it's always going to be that intense and like that demanding on your life? Yeah, I think studio culture and especially when you're younger, the frenzy mm. deadline is because you have so many deadlines is, sure. is part of the culture. I don't think I've, I haven't taught in a school where students didn't have this kind of culture of kind of frenzied all-nighters and, mm-hmm. and lack of sleep. And you're sort of sitting there talking to someone and they've got like five Red Bulls and Advil and you're trying to figure out like if they're really all there. I try to yeah. tell them to, you know. You like your little test questions. That, that, that <laughs> sleep is necessary for yeah. coherence. So, so I think that's just um, part of of the kind of initiation and younger mm. culture of being an architect. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's so much to learn. And I think the design is an open-ended kind of bottomless pit. So that, you know, it's never done. It's not like a souffle where there's a kind of moment where it's done perfectly. And then if you keep going, you're going to overcook it. Um, although maybe it is sometimes like a souffle. Uh, but, you know, I think the idea, especially uh, in everyone's early training, there's like this immense history and an immense span of ideas. And of course, you know nothing. And so trying to assemble it and begin to learn it and become literate, but then also work on the project and explore all of its possible avenues. It's easy to kind of pour a never ending amount of effort into something. And I think that's part of the stimulation of all night studio culture. On the other hand, I think it also has to do with kind of hallucinations. So, you know, especially when you are particularly overtired, there's a kind of glorious, delirious, hallucinatory moment that begins to emerge mm-hmm. where it's very easy to convince yourself that now your creative juices are really flowing. So if we just stay up a little longer and get slightly less lucid that finally the creative inspiration will come. And certainly as a person studying architecture, I felt that a lot that Mm -hmm. somehow just going into the delirium of sleep deprivation, the great idea might somehow arrive. And that also the myth that one idea is going to be better than the other idea somehow that's perpetuates this kind of longing and waiting expectantly for the idea to arrive. So I think there's a whole range of things, including just basic human competition. So, you know, you've got the competitive sleep deprived, who can go hardest, who can go longest working in a context of, you know, Westernized values where hard work is part of a kind of foundation of expectations around what is good and right and just in the world. And I think those things all kind of combine to produce a context where it's very easy for people to kind of work in that way and believe that working in that way is not only productive, but good. 
Right. I think creative work is hard <laughs> and it doesn't necessarily, you know, it's something that how to be productive and creative mm-hmm. at the same time is something that you need to learn how to do. So your latest work entitled Infra Eco Lobby Urbanism took the form of an impressive traveling gallery exhibition, which is now being released as a book. At the risk of spoilers for those planning on reading the book, could you speak about the meaning of those various prefixes and what can we infer from them about your approach? Okay. So when we typically talk about urbanism, uh, you think of kind of cities, downtowns, the kind of patterns of urbanization that we've come to recognize and we're taught sort of Manhattan, Paris, the kind of plan of Rome, Washington, D.C. with the diagonal boulevards and, and cities that have been kind of planned and designed. But we now live in a condition, as Ed Soja has argued, that, you know, the entire planet is urbanized. And so we're not really talking only about urbanization within these kinds of city cores, but really kind of urbanization outside of the city core. So how do we start to understand that kind of urbanization? How do we start to kind of work on it? And and the prefixes are ways to kind of qualify that this is not the urbanism of the official city. This is that kind of urbanism of the periphery of these kind of resource territories, of these kind of ex-urban territories. And these um, prefixes are really the kind of forces that we think are kind of operating in in place. So infra really is a prefix that connotes below or underneath, kind of like infrared, but also, interestingly for us, infrastructure, which becomes the kind of organizational principle of that kind of urbanism that, that spans over territories. Eco is a prefix that's shared by both the word economy and the word ecology, and both are really important in thinking about the kind of formation of exurban territories. So particularly in North America, the kind of post-Fordist economies of speculation, of investment logics, of the kind of flow of markets that produce that urbanism, that produce everything from kind of subdivisions to dead malls. And then there's ecologies, these kind of the ecosystems that are really intertwined with these diffuse urban territories, ecologies of kind of waste landscapes, resources, um, things like that. And finally, logi refers to kind of both logics and logistics. And these are the kind of spatial and territorial practices of production, of movement of goods, of kind of operations that occur outside of the official city. And these have traditionally been considered the the kind of back of house of cities, the kind of um, territories that are in service of what we consider the official cities. But to us, they're a really interesting territory to operate in. And so I guess what you can infer from this is, and the project considers, if you want to work on urbanism beyond the core, you need to kind of think and operate infrastructurally through economics, through concepts of ecology, through concepts of logistics. So if we want to kind of play in this territory, we kind of need to understand the rules, the codes, the 
kind of operational tactics, the, the mechanisms of spatial production and the, the kind of spatial products within these territories and what kind of work the architectural object can or can't do out there. So the project really hypothesizes that if we start to kind of work through thinking in this way that we might find a kind of agency for architecture at that urban scale within this peripheral territory. So how would you describe the balance of the work for for ecological urbanism? Yeah, it's part manifesto, part urban analysis, part historical inquiry, part speculation, a part of a speculative design proposition. And then, as you mentioned, it's also an exhibition as well as a book. So we kind of have Infraecology Urbanism, the book, Infraecology Urbanism, the exhibition. So it's a kind of multi-headed beast of a project that spans a lot of media and, and territory. I think part of the reason why it takes on that range of shapes has to do with its history. And so far as the project is actually unraveled over a long duration of time, rough, like if you think about when we started working on this specific project, which would be early 2008. And if you understand that the book was released, you know, in North America in September, so 2015, Part of the issue is that we began working on different parts of the work, and then those individual segments of work prompted other kinds of response. We proposed an initial question. We began to look at something. The boundaries of inquiry expanded from highway space and thinking about energy and mobility to engaging mega regions, which weren't actually really part of the initial project. Hmm. We then began to, you know, undertake this extensive mapping, understanding what sets of forces and material flows constituted the territory of the mega region. We then began to imagine infrastructural operations within that territory, which made us look at specific sites, which made us imagine design proposals, which made us start to look at who are the agents and actors active in the zone of those proposals which made us reflect to what end are we intervening, which made us think about the commons, which made us imagine the possibility of a plausible urban future, which wouldn't simply play out in infrastructural design alone, which causes us to think about how should we be living and working as humans and what rights do we have to energy, mobility and space, and then imagine what kind of architecture might both operationally house and enable access to those things while also expressing their availability as a kind of iconography to a citizenry of the region. <laughs> Fact. All right. So the work takes the form of an analysis and set of propositions for the, the Great Lakes mega region. Yeah. Right. So maybe you could introduce us to the Great Lakes mega region and talk a bit about what makes it of particular interest as a scale and a both as a type of scale and as a territory. So are there other mega regions that are just as interesting or, or how does the concept of the mega region relate to our conventional notions of city and suburbs? Right. I mean, I think mega regions are a global entity. They're a kind of expansive formation that are very much produced by time duration forces of urbanization and the globalization of culture and capital. The Great Lakes mega region of those which have been identified in North America, the Great Lakes mega region is the largest and most populous. It's also particularly interesting because it's assembled around a massive freshwater ecology. It has a legacy associated with that 
freshwater system of being the center for manufacturing and production that stem from an early industrialization and water-based transportation, but that it also produced a really kind of unique set of cultures that we might associate with cities like Chicago, Detroit, Montreal, Toronto, and the space that we think of as the Rust Belt in terms of a once active and now perhaps in decline center of manufacturing, cultural production, and material production. But it's also where we live. And so we, we started, you know, we started thinking about this uh, question when we were living in Toronto. And at the time, Kathy was a fellow here at the University of Michigan. And so I was driving back and forth on the 401 highway to visit her as often as I could. And, you know, we started just thinking about the space moving through it. And, uh, then began to become more interested in what is this thing? What's happening here? For me, that's the question when I move through any of the perimeter territories that we drive through, whether it's in the Great Lakes mega region or elsewhere in North America, I find myself at the intersection of two arterial roads and there's a metal clad building puffing something into the air just slightly at the edge of the horizon. And I look around and there's a house over there with a dog and a kind of broken car in front of it. And I'm like, what are people doing here? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's a big question for yeah, me. Yeah, like, yeah. what are people doing here? Mm-hmm. You know, and so the work is also looking at that, like, you know. Yeah. And is the Great Lakes mega region, so it's positioned. So in the book, you have this great essay by Robert Fishman, who positions the sort of history of the region and really its importance to the 20th century, all the way back to, you know, the first French fur traders, right? Mm-hmm. And he makes this really interesting argument about the, you know, how it's always been a distributed network, right? Mm -hmm. It's never been a really centralized thing. So is there something about that? Is that interesting to you because it's just as a phenomenon or is it also interesting to you because it has some sort of implications globally? Like, is it this region that is really the thing that you're working on? Or is there also like some implicit projection about global conditions that we could infer from the sort of work that you've done here? Yeah, for sure. On one hand, we were particularly interested in the Great Lakes megaregion. We're interested in how it also challenges some of the more typical descriptions of megaregions, which usually have to do with identifying the kind of populations of multiple city centers that have kind of been agglomerated over a kind of territory. And what we were interested in the Great Lakes megaregion is that there is this kind of resource territory of the Great Lakes that really kind of figures the very specific urban patterns and urbanization of the Great Lakes itself. And so um, we were very interested in the way that natural systems and other kind of ecological systems configure and also kind of co-evolve with urban systems. And and I think that um, if we haven't yet really looked at you know, intensively at other mega regions. But I think looking at the Great Lakes as a kind of co-evolutionary kind of biotic as well as human system is a kind of perspective that really comes to the foreground in that in this mega region as opposed to maybe some of the other some of the other ways that mega regions have been explored thus far. While this is the space that we've been looking at most closely, it's interesting insofar as that we've actually received an invitation and have done some consultation with the province of Gelderland in the Netherlands, which is located about midway between the port of Rotterdam and the Ruhrgebiet, uh, the mega region of which is most commonly and affectionately referred to as the blue banana. And interestingly there, I mean, there's very active discussions in their planning department about the 
assembling of energy landscapes with a mobility conduit that connects those two key locations. The Port of Rotterdam and the Rurikabite is a series of inland ports. And at the same time, they're asking questions about how do we develop this space while retaining the kind of landscape character, which is central to tourism in the region, and plan for the intensification of urbanization in that space, as well as projecting and planning and aiming to catalyze new economies in the region. So, I mean, in some ways, the kind of story that we project for the Great Lakes Meg region is a discussion that's happening globally. Similarly, at the moment, the discussion around the new Silk Road and, and linking Europe and China as a kind of infrastructural system that's intercontinental, for me, is an even more exciting kind of <laughs> vista and begins to operate at a scale that actually links multiple mega regions. So, I mean, I think our interest in this work could be extended to many other subjects. While the Great Lakes mega region is the location we've spent the most time thinking about, I also find the Texas Triangle particularly intriguing. Hmm. The Netherlands one would be a super interesting contrast given that so all of the work here is about the you know i'd say like the most notable characteristic of the region and the thing that having read through the book sponsors a lot of the sort of infrastructural opportunities is historically based in just the fact that there's a ton of fresh water right like that's the the major landscape condition which mm -hmm. sponsors the, the sort of the history mm -hmm. and the the capabilities of the region and the netherlands like they all but author that themselves, right? Like every step of the way. So this is the response to the insane natural condition, like that being a response to the, you know, the not artificial, but the constructed condition, mm -hmm. uh, the edited condition would be really exciting. Well, in a condition of density too, where, you know, land use and adjacency is incredibly intense. So you have uh, agricultural grazing land immediately adjacent to 200 people job a hectare, residential densities immediately adjacent to manufacturing, immediately adjacent to energy production. It's actually astonishing when you come from a space like the one we reside in, you know, where land is extensive and seemingly infinite. In the case of the Netherlands, the idea about how to participate in a similar set of urban intensifications, but with a very constrained and intensively occupied space, the issues are totally different, even if the forces right. to which the system is trying to respond are actually very similar. So in terms of political positioning or more ideological positioning of the, the work, in infra-ecology urbanism, you engage with ideas of utopia or more precisely utopistics. For many of us in the disciplines of architecture and design, the word utopia conjures images of intellectually non-rigorous work or idealism that's uh, divorced from reality, right? So utopia is typically a pretty dirty word. The work that you've done here is incredibly well-researched and responds directly to the physical realities of the region, as we've been discussing, yet you explicitly identify that it is in a relationship with ideas of utopia. So what can we learn from the legacy of utopias and how does this most recent work respond to those ideas? Sure. Well, if you look at the history of utopia and utopian thinking, as we try to do um, in the book, you actually find that it's a pretty serious endeavor, both in a kind of, it has a very strong literary history, as well as a kind of urban and architectural history. And in many ways, it's a kind of vital form of speculation for possible futures. As we started looking at kind of utopian thinking, 
there's the the kind of utopias um, like Constance New Babylon that are very well known, or, or Robert Owen's um, New Harmony, that are the kind of prototypical visions of utopia that we've come to know. And these are kind of situated within kind of entirely new social constructs, as well as new architectural constructs. But what we started to get interested in is that utopia is essentially a kind of vision for an alternative future, and one that is often ideal or at least preferable to the one that we have now. And then if you're an architect, there is a kind of corollary urban form that um, can support this kind of society. And so if you're actually situating a project within a political economic framework that's different, even ever so slightly from the one that we are in right now, you're essentially engaging in utopian thinking. So, so you start to when you it, right? <laughs> so you start to realize that utopia is also not just about kind of a, a completely, you know, it's not of another place. It actually can be something that that kind of grows out of current conditions, and it's really a kind of vision for the future. And that's where, when we were reading some kind of radical social theory and political theory, we came across um, the work of Emmanuel Wallerstein, and he um, wrote this little book called Utopistics, which was uh, kind of, his coining of the phrase was a way to think about utopia as something that is a more plausible, kind of grounded possibility. So it's a kind of future that is possible, actually, given kind of current situations, but not necessarily likely. Mm -hmm. So, um, but speculating on that, you might kind of start to think, well, how could this be a possibility? And so one of the most interesting things about um, plausible utopias or utopistics is that um, it is still grounded in, in contemporary reality enough that we can start to imagine how it could happen if we were to so desire. And we started looking at um, this kind of lineage of plausible utopias such as um, Cedric Price's Pottery's Think Belt, the Smithson's Helpstadt Berlin Project, O.M. Unger's and Rem Koolhaas's Green Archipelago Project for Berlin as kind of models for these kinds of plausible utopias and, and looked at how um, both the kind of social um, and politico-economic structures that they imagined, as well as the kind of architectural forms and urban forms that, that um, would kind of house this society. Like, I think of someone like Keller Easterling, like her analysis is always very much, the way I see it at least, is that it's about understanding and trying to accept the world as it is. Keller Easterling's writing and thinking is, is pretty important to us. And I think that... Um, I would actually kind of characterize her work in not necessarily only accepting the reality. I think she actually does a, a kind of amazing job of exposing hmm. the mechanisms of that spatial production and to kind of, you know, really understand them. And the way, even though she never makes propositions of anything that would counter that. I, you know, when I read Keller, there is an undercurrent that she's kind of 
hoping that someone will take on the mantle of what she calls the the double agent, the kind of infiltrate this nefarious space to try to, and I can only imagine that the goal is actually to try to, to change it because, you know, as a kind of infiltrator. And so I think she sort of opens the door into those mechanisms and, and actually the kind of thinking of kind of infraecology, urbanism, logistics, economy, the politics, those kind of the logics of mm-hmm. the way that these spaces operate. Really, we learned a lot from her. And that's where we try to situate the project as kind of actually leveraging some of those to kind of just turn them on their heads because you could actually, we're interested in how you could take a kind of system, an economic system and kind of leverage it for another purpose. In the same way that, that let's say an economic system has currently, you know, the capitalist system has been leveraged towards a certain purpose for a certain people in in financial circle. But it doesn't have to be that way. These are actually kind of pliable systems. So you can actually, if you start to imagine another kind of politico-economic reality, the same way that, um, you know, now turning to some of the work of Hart and Negri that, that thinks about, you know, even just the notion of the commons or common property, could you actually take all this stuff that we have now and actually just repurpose it towards a different end. And so it's the same system, but the end goal is different. And that, and and you can actually kind of do that if you think about the way that systems operate, which is why we're, we're also very interested in reading a lot of systems thinking. One of the, the books that we often reference is Danella Meadows' Places to Intervene in a System. And she kind of talks about how you can take an existing system and without a lot of big overhauls, actually kind of turn it on its head. And that's being done all the time in the world. You know, that, sure. that's actually being done all the time right now. So if you had a kind of slightly different goal, maybe um, you could have different outcomes. Ultimately, I think this is... A- where our ideological kind of mantra on our sleeves, which is that, you know, we're designers trained within a framework that looks very closely at the cultural history of the West. And, uh, you know, I think in the end, at least for me, the words of Abraham Heschel, to be is to stand for is something that I've so internalized into my understanding of what I'm supposed to be doing as a person that it's very difficult not to imagine that beyond the revealing of what constitutes the real and how it might operate, that there's an implication to attempt to transform. And, you know, I think that that for us, that would be central in anything that we do is that in the end, there would be a moment where action was required. And when one needs to act, the issue of how one must act and what one must propose moves directly to the fore. It's a bit uncomfortable because in the end it means declaring ideology and standing for, but I don't know how else we would approach it. Taking a step back and speaking more generally, uh, it seems that your design research outside of infra eco bloody urbanism has increasingly and necessarily incorporated embedded technology. So can you talk a bit about the new systems project and how your team has had to develop new skills or form strategic partnerships to accomplish your research goals? Mm -hmm. So this is a project that's 
kind of on the other end of the scale spectrum than the the kind of urbanism work. And and for I guess for listeners who don't know about this project, the project is looking at developing a kind of novel deep skin systems for architecture that are comprised of nested inflated cushions that can adapt to locally changing conditions kind of through the variable pressure of air. So on one hand, a lot of this work is driven by uh, these kind of aesthetic and experiential interests that we have in kind of soft systems, in atmospheres, even in the the kind of politics of air. Um, And then we've done a number of projects on kind of environmental building skins that deal with the kind of soft systems of architecture to kind of almost perceptibly and through distributed technologies create these sensing skins, sensing and reacting skins that can both adapt and interact with humans. So I guess the second part of your question, which is what skills and and partnerships, to work on a project like this, we've had to kind of build up a kind of host of technical skills, everything from uh, learning how to kind of prototype and weld plastic films, you know, really kind of hands-on skills to computational uh, methods for inflation modeling, to a lot of um, control technologies, sensing and control technologies. Usually um, right now we work mostly with kind of Arduino-based sensing and control. And for that project, we actually had to learn to work with pneumatic kind of manifolds and regulators. And we, we had great support from a pneumatic manufacturer in the area called SMC, who kind of both donated some technology to the project and also helped us really develop the control mechanisms and and particularly our associate at the time, Mary O'Malley, who was really the guru in all these technologies that we were working with. Yeah, the project also was interested in and a lot of the kind of cultural history of pneumatics and inflatables. Can we talk a little bit about that? I'm interested, like, so you mentioned the politics of air, right? Or the the idea that the system might have some social or political consequences, right? Because for me, I'm, I'm interested in connecting like the thread ideologically now, <laughs> given that we had that like that yeah. discussion about what infer ecology, uh, for sure. the sort of, sort of like the flag that, that you've planted in the conversation now. <laughs> I'm interested how that's reflected in your new systems work. Or if it's a different different type of project for you? Yeah, I mean, one of the um, interests that we've had in the response of building envelopes is how to develop kind of more cognitive relationships between kind of humans and buildings and environments. We've been thinking a lot about the way that being aware of one's own impact on mm-hmm. the environment and the way that being aware of one's own impact on the environment can be a kind of political act, can be a kind of politics to kind of create awareness, kind of politics as awareness. And so what we've been thinking through a lot of our responsive envelope projects is a building envelope that starts to become aware of both climate and humans. And there's the kind of new political space that's created between yourself the environment and the kind of building. So it's a it's a very different kind of political f- framework, but it is a framework of negotiation. So when we talk about, let's say, 
sustainability or kind of environmental politics. It is that kind of negotiation between yourself, the things that you create, the things that you live in, and the environment. And the a kind of deeper impetus of all of these projects is to kind of create a kind of awareness. So they're not trying to solve a specific problem sure. of, let's say, energy or, or building insulation, even though they do work through those mechanisms. Mm-hmm. But the kind of larger interest that we always have is the way that they kind of, through making the environment public, mm-hmm. they create a kind of politics. Yeah, yeah. When I imagine the interface, it's a somehow a combination of politics and poetics. Yes. Like that's the other ingredient that kind of Definitely. distinguishes it. Like not that there's no poetics in the infrastructural, but like, you know, it's, it does not loom quite as large as it does. When well, the, yeah. Right. And the pneumatics work actually came out of, you know, a lot of reading that we've been doing on air. And we kind of came across this uh, amazing history that physicists in the kind of 17th century believed that there was this medium called a nervous ether that would register um, all the kind of pulsations of the universe. And, and, and it was this kind of medium that would be a kind of receptor of these um, energy flows, information flows, light flows. Well, they didn't have a concept of information flows then, but, <laughs> but, uh, but, but kind of magnetic flows, um, different kinds of pulses. And we've, um, with the uh, responsive work, we've been really interested in the kind of informational milieu that we exist in, that Michelle Serra talks about, or our colleague Malcolm McCullough, this kind of data oceans, these oceans of information. Mm-hmm. And and so we were interested in, in an architecture that would become a kind of sensing body, not only to its immediate environment and to humans, but also all this kind of information. Mm-hmm. So one of the earlier incarnations of that project that we did as a as a workshop actually responded both to humans as well as to these kind of extrinsic data flows of of let's say air pressure and wind speed and seismic seismographs kind of distributed um, globally so the kind of envelope of the building kind of became incredibly sensitive to the kind of broader environment as well as um, its immediate conditions. So the result of that might be building as interface with with atmosphere, right? Like yeah. more active, like changing yeah. that relationship. It's, it's really a kind of epigenetic building that really becomes much more sensitive and sensitive in a way that is kind of cognitively recognizable to us, which is why mm. things like inflatables so that it sort of becomes agitated and quivers or, mm-hmm. or starts to move. Um, and we can kind of control that with kind of very simple air pressure that it kind of um, creates this kind of conversation, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting project, too, to think about that way, because also at the same time, it's situated in emerging material technologies of EPDM. You know, the, this series of projects have been funded by the Department of Energy, funded by the Environmental Protection Agency, and so National Research Council of Canada, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. So at the same time, there's always a technical question and a societal question that's being posited that might be a priority for other agencies that allow us to gather these other kinds of questions around the projects. Mm-hmm. 
Was there a top secret message? No, I, don't know. I said EPDM, which is the name of a rap band, and I meant ETFE, which is, which, which is an advanced polymer. <laughs> Just leave that on That's the track. Yeah. <laughs> done. Okay, so maybe we can move into the academy then. So mm-hmm. in addition to running a robust practice in RBTR, you both teach at uh, University of Michigan's Taubman College, as, as you mentioned. Does teaching support or inspire your research practice, or is it an, more so a necessary means to stabilize the less consistent sources of work for your practice? I think that um, probably the former much more. I think when we first started RBTR, I think we thought that, yeah, teaching could support us. And then we that meant that we could do this, you know, we could leverage that to do experimental work. But mm-hmm. what I've found more and more and, and probably because of the um, opportunities we have to really structure our own teaching agenda at Taubman College, that the teaching really becomes a testing ground for new ideas. Seminars become the way that I kind of really flush out a lot of, um, you know, kind of philosophies, theories um, with students. I used to teach a course for several years called interconnected and technologically enhanced buildings, ecologies, bodies. And so the kind of reading list um, for that that seminar was kind of probably a kind of seminal part of the kind of emerging philosophy of the practice. So yeah, the teaching is uh, really kind of inspires a lot of the thinking, although what we try not to do is kind of blur the boundaries between the work that is done in the kind of studio and then the work that we claim is kind of mm-hmm. RBTR work. So save a couple of, of kind of guest workshops that we've done. There's really a kind of separation between what the work that we consider RBTR work and the work that gets done by students in the mm-hmm. studio. I mean, on the other hand, at a pragmatic level, it's also a kind of training ground. So at the moment, we live in a city that's got a population of 113,000 people with a football stadium that holds 115,000 people. (laughs) And our teaching is very much a place where we ultimately develop and train people who then come in and work in RVTR. It's our primary recruiting site for the people we work with. And so there's also a very specific, rigorous relationship between the relationships we develop with students who at some moment we are their professors teaching them. And in a moment where they then enter, typically upon graduation, uh, RBTR and become contributors and collaborators. So there's also a kind of really interesting, very literal relationship of training, thinking, learning to work with people, and then populating the effort of, of the office. So this is the dynamic that you've got currently where this is also recruiting ground for you. But I wonder if if you think about the institution itself, between the two of you, you've taught at a lot of different places, right? The University of Waterloo, University of Toronto, California College of the Arts, Ryerson, Université du Québec à Montréal, or Montreal for those of us speaking American, and Fry Université Berlin. Given all of that exposure, I may have missed some. You mentioned Rome earlier, so maybe I missed that one. So a lot. So you've been exposed to a lot of different institutions. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you find to be the most critical cultural dimensions of a successful academic institution. I think we probably have some reflections on that, both perhaps from seeing and being in situations that seem to be extremely fertile and productive, as well as witnessing maybe contexts that aren't as productive. But I think for me, one of the things that really matters is to produce a kind of 
space in which the number, quantity, and subjects of discussion are as expansive as possible. And I think that can also produce a kind of intensive energy between students and faculty that also becomes competitive, like competitive in trying to produce something amazing, whatever it is. And so, you know, Alvin Boyarsky probably is one of the most celebrated or at least romanticized leaders of institutions, the former director of the Architectural Association in London, you know, under whom the competitive history between Shumi and Coolhouse emerges. And of course, I wasn't there in the early 1970s studying and witnessing that, but as a kind of mythos and then thinking about what we have seen on the ground, that seems to be a really essential ingredient in producing a kind of vital design culture is assembling that sort of diversity and then putting it into productive frictions in public. Mm-hmm. How many camps do you need, do you think? So you need minimum two camps per school? I think you need more than two camps so that you can avoid the straight-up yeah. polemical battles. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. This is what's nice about Michigan. There's a lot of camps. Yeah. I'd say to kind of add to that, I think that um, more on the kind of student culture side, I think schools that foster a really strong studio culture where students are are working in mm-hmm. the studio yeah. and... Um, Sort of in our experiences, kind of Michigan is great for that. The University of Waterloo was also great for that, partially probably because of their situation is kind of situated outside of large cities, um, kind of in more provincial situations. Um, when you get into schools that are within big cities, you get a lot of what we call commuter students who live at home and are taking their studio projects from their kind of suburban house on the subway <laughs> to school. And, and that doesn't really breed a particularly productive life in the studio because I think that students actually learn almost as much from each other as their professors. And so I think that um, students that, that actually work in studio, but you need to have a kind of critical mass of of healthy competition also amongst the students that I think usually produces the kind of most kind of interesting work that um, the kind of most interesting student bodies that I've been involved in. So the model is really a monastery. You you (laughs) want to assemble in in a situation of quasi isolation, a set of pliable, ambitious uh, young people who can then become indoctrinated sufficiently to become zealous in their pursuit of the thing. I've often wondered if it tracks. So I haven't witnessed many schools in warm places, but I always wanted, I wanted to know, like, how do they do it? Like, I wonder if you like took each institution, like the average student by uh, latitude, like how they would compare. Cause I would find myself like there is an advantage to being here in Michigan, right? Like we're about to head into winter semester and you won't want to go outside. It's really easy to work really hard when you're freezing cold. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So speaking of studio, how do you get a student unstuck during the design process and how does this compare potentially without you get yourself unstuck during a design process? Hmm. Oh, I don't know. I mean, someone is stuck. It kind of means that they can't see a way forward or that they can't move from the position that they're in. So for me, the problem of even imagining that it's possible to be stuck implies that there's uh, no specific place to go. 
and I would want to try to produce a condition where specifically in working with students that the way you see the project is a thing in which you can't ever possibly be stuck. And certainly one of the most formative experiences I had as a student was with a professor named uh, Michael Elmet, who would come down to your uh, desk with a roll of trace paper and ask you what you were working on. And then he would kind of furl it out horizontally and start sketching while he was talking and you would sketch while you were talking. And the thing would kind of just start to roll over onto the floor and you would have this kind of animated discussion at the end of which, even if you imagined you were stuck, let's say at the beginning, there was clearly 20 feet of evidence that there were a whole range of issues that were active in the work. And so inevitably I found that at least for me, a really kind of formative way to think through moving laterally without moving laterally being words we say yeah. only, but actually a kind of active way of working through and redescribing where you're at to realize the abundance that's actually there. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah, just working in a slightly different medium on the project helps to kind of move you away from that, that kind of any kind of perception of being stuck. And I think that, um, yeah, I think I often try to get students to do a different kind of drawing mm-hmm. or to draw the project in a different way or do a model or kind of work in a different way as a way of kind of producing um, a kind of different way into the project. I think for, you know, we, and we probably do that in our own work. You know, when I, if I ever feel stuck partially because I'm a more cerebral person. I'll probably read something <laughs> and, uh, and that, and that, uh, but I think that only works for me. <laughs> That's what gives you a new lens. Yeah. And so Jeff, am I to understand from your response that you structure things such that you will not ever become unstuck? I try to work in a way that I'm just constantly pivoting and then shifting to something else because frankly, there's just so much to do and uh, it can't all be stuck at the same time. So I just try to like, try to keep moving. I'm a kind of like a rolling stone gathers no moss kind of a guy in that regard. And so I just kind of try to make sure that I'm whatever uh, I'm working on is working. Funny you should mention a rolling stone. So Jeff, you were known in school for sending out uh, so the Section Cut co-founders, we all went to, to grad school here at Michigan, as our listeners might know. And Jeff, when we were here in school, you were known for uh, sending out motivational rock ballad YouTube videos late at night, uh, the night before reviews. So does this kind of tactic fit into uh, a home teething methodology or philosophy or like what's behind that sort of move for you and culturally as well? Well, it's a funny thing because I'm a kind of uh, really serious about architecture and design. And I'm kind of a really demanding uh, studio professor, I think. And it's been pointed out to me by others. Uh, But at a certain point in the term, when the whole operation is kind of heading into the end zone, I always get overcome by this kind of nostalgic feeling, a kind of nurturing urge. And then I find myself thinking about students cranking away in the studio while I'm maybe here at home or sometimes imagining them struggling away. And so I'll become kind of empathetic to that. So then I kind of sit down and pick a particular set of songs and send them out. And I always imagine it's a kind of inspirational salvo, a kind of soundtrack by which one might vision themselves as being epic 
it's kind of about attempting to impart the moment of imagining oneself as epic that arrives at the end of the studio as a kind of parting gift. So that's really what it's about. <laughs> but the way that, you know, I have come to know Jeff is there is a kind of soundtrack to his life. And no matter what the mood is, Jeff will put on the kind of soundtrack to whatever we're doing or, you know, there's always a soundtrack going on in it and it's usually kind of rock ballad. Yeah. And, and so I get them, I get rock ballads <laughs> in the middle of the night nice. as well. Sometimes if I've gone to bed before, Jeff, you know, I, yeah, there's and good friends of ours or collaborators will get rock ballads. And I think that's part of the way that Jeff <laughs> actually communicates and kind of uh, exists in the world. Part of the lingua franca. There we go. <laughs> so can you provide some advice to educators earlier on in their career? And specifically, uh, like, how does one market oneself as a potential faculty member to a new institution? I think it's a, like a seduction. Yeah. I think if you, it's, <laughs> if you want to convince an institution of one's merit as a future member, then you need to describe an ambition and produce a kind of image of a possible future that you might arrive at that's so exquisitely and astonishingly beautiful that the host entity has no possible move except to embrace you and nurture you in the pursuit of that dream. And if you can frame it like that, I think that, that that's a way in which a lot of people can access, get assembled around uh, the support and uh, production of the trajectory on your behalf. So why don't you tell us about what you're working on right now, or perhaps more appropriately, uh, what 10 things you're working on, or 10 of the things that you're working on right now. Okay. We're working on a really interesting project called Deep Monitoring with a group of doctors from the University of Michigan Medical School and Department of Genomics, who also are very focused on the delivery of low-cost healthcare in the developing world using telematics and other kinds of new technologies to enable diagnosis to occur in locations where there may not be expertise or medical care available. Uh, and our kind of role in the project is, you know, we're developing the physical environment in which this will occur. And at a kind of pragmatic level, it's a project involving the redesign of containers to deliver diagnostic medical services, but also at the same time produce a kind of public space in which questions about nutrition and healthy eating are simultaneously paired with technology-enabled physical diagnosis for patients. So it becomes a kind of infrastructural system that will service relatively small communities that are distant from urban centers. And we're working on it for a range of different global locations, but at the moment we're prototyping the first instantiation for a location in Jamaica. So that's one thing we're working on and it's a big kind of systems design, medical care delivery mapping project, as well as detailing uh, containers and solar panels and stuff like that. So that's a kind of interesting project. We're working on a piece right now. It's kind of like one of the most recent instantiation in the responsive envelope work. That's mostly just working on a kinetic system and the design of a software environment through Grasshopper that will enable designers to work on kinetic systems in, in collaboration with Wes McGee. 
So it's using Delta robots, which the most famous Delta robot is the the camera flying over the football stadium, you know, uh, with four cables in order to do those great tracking shots. We're basically developing our own Delta robots that will be paired with a kind of rubber extruded textile to produce a kind of dynamic uh, environment. It started as a project thinking about the next generation of the resonant chamber project. So a lightweight kinetic sound altering system. And it's kind of become technical in its orientation at the moment. Now we're just really working on the the spatial positioning part of it and then developing a, a software and control system that'll produce the kind of gross movements that some of our other projects um, anticipated but hadn't yet developed as part of their work. We're working on uh, projects with Ford Motor Company and the Department of Transportation right now, a number of different projects, but two One's working, again, at a regional scale using cartography and data scrubbing from Bloomberg and other kinds of economic data sources to enable thought leaders and politicians to visually spatialize the way in which emerging economies and specifically economic clusters are materializing in a given region. We're working on another project with the Department of Transportation which we have a kind of poetic name for called Protean Prototypes, but which is basically looking at ways in which access to a variety of essential services can be provided within the physical space of transportation infrastructure. So at the scale of elements like a bus stop, how do you deliver food, learning, health in those spaces to the scale of very large scale transportation exchanges. We're working on a project with the Environmental Protection Agency and Stuart Batterman from the School of Public Health, which is measuring the ways in which the kind of new generation of buildings developed through the LEED criteria and others, uh, measuring the indoor environmental quality that's actually being delivered in the classroom, and then working with educational scholars from uh, Wayne State University, trying to assess how those conditions are affecting student health and learning. So that's kind of interesting project. Andrew Wall from our office at the moment is like on the road across the Midwest with a bunch of sensing gear, visiting 50 schools from Indianapolis to Ohio. We're working on a project with Christopher Rate from the Kelsey Museum of Archaeology in Notion, uh, Turkey. Notion is an ancient Ionian city, and it was a kind of fundamental port access for the rest of the Ionian establishments within what's now Turkey. There, we're working on a kind of long-term sustainable master plan, both to govern the environmental operations that will happen on site as the ancient city gets investigated by archaeologists, but also then which will shape the transition into ultimately part of a network of tourist destinations associated with ancient culture in Turkey. So that's a really exciting project that Kathy's been working on intensely for the last little while. And we're working on a project with a guy named Pierre Belanger at Harvard and a filmmaker named Ed Bertinsky and Nina Marie Lister called Extraction. Um, this is looking at specifically the country of Canada and its relationship to global extraction economies and the physical space of material extraction. A portion of that work we're hoping will materialize at the Venice Biennale in May, but it's also a kind of larger project that we imagine will result in a book and a traveling exhibition in Canada. And then the last piece that we're working on right now 
that Colin's leading is the uh, we, he's developing the program and agenda for a new school of architecture in Saskatchewan of all places. Wow. So there's kind of a range of things. <laughs> so basically you're coasting is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, we've hit a mid career moment and we're really <laughs> just deciding to tap the brakes and take a break. Wow. Cool. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking with us. This has been really incredible. We have one final question that we usually ask, which is, uh, oh, we're, we're, there's a twist this time. So, Kathy, what is Jeff's spirit animal? That's <laughs> funny because we never thought of ourselves as spirit animals. Um, <laughs> this is a new this is a new, this is a new thought. Yeah. And so, on one hand, and I'm going to ruin this question by, by saying that, that, that. Actually, ask the question again. And where's the thing again? There it is. Okay, yeah. So ask the, if you can ask the question again and go like this, go like. Ask uh, Jeff. Jeff, yeah. what's Kathy's spirit animal? Kathy, what's Jeff's spirit animal? No, 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 no. Yeah. Right. No, it's just, no, just do it. Just do it. Just do it. I'm going to say that you're a Wolverine. You are? <laughs> Did you guys uh, like come up with them and then not show each other? No, but that would have been best. I would have loved that. <laughs> all right. Okay. So, so, all right. So you're just actually going to answer the spirit animal question. I'll answer this. Cause I was going to say like, we don't really have spirit animals like our kind of alternate animate selves are actually more geological and so <laughs> Kathy is like water and then someone else has has told me that Jeff is like a rock <laughs> but, but, uh, this was actually pointed out to us by a former professor who right. once making sense of the ways in which we both <laughs> operated in the world actually paired those two things together That's good. That's so good. he said you know that I was somehow like a rock and Kathy was like water able to nimbly move around the rock <laughs> So with that in mind, is he igneous, sedimentary? Do we have any? Probably igneous. Igneous, yeah. I mean, there's a reason I said that first. I think that's probably the right one. Yeah. Thanks so much for talking with us. Okay, okay thank yeah, you. thank you, John. Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks. An hour and 20 minutes of glorious explosion of ideas coming straight out of University of Michigan's Taubin College and RVTR. Jeff Toon, Kathy Velkov, you guys are incredible. Thank you so much for spending time with Jono to wax philosophical about all the great things you're working on and the interesting ideas that you convey. Section Cut is an independent web and media endeavor founded by Robert Yuen, Kyle Sturgeon, Jono Sturt, and myself, Dan Weissman. Today we had production assistance by Evelyn from Fiverr. Uh, this is not a paid advertisement for Fiverr, but it was a really a great service, and Evelyn did a great job editing this podcast, so thank you. If you have questions or comments about the interview or about Section Cut, do not hesitate to email us at info at sectioncut.com. And as always, remember to check out Section Cut. We post new content every week. And we're constantly trying to make the project as good as it can be. Thanks a lot. And enjoy your tomorrow.